You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Frank. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's coming up on The Exchange. The best thing about the first half of the year for stocks is the fact that it's almost over. We're down again today as we close out the worst start in 52 years. But previous bad beginnings have been followed by strong finishes. Why history gives some hope for a rebound. Crypto, of course, also getting crushed this year. Bitcoin's down 60%, back below 20,000 today. And while many are looking for a bottom, the bad news keeps rolling in. We have the very latest. Almost as bad as Bitcoin, the ETF of recent IPOs. It's lost half its value in 2022. So we are hunting for opportunity in the sell-off with three buys and a bail. But first, let's start with these markets. We're well off session lows, actually. At the lows today, the Dow was down almost 600 points, if you can believe it. Right now, we're down about 120 or a third of 1%, down a quarter percent for the S&P, down half a percent for the NASDAQ. Tech is leading the declines today with big cap tech among the biggest losers. But these are modest as the tone has improved this afternoon. Amazon, Alphabet, Apple down 1% to 2%. Amazon, believe it or not, at 106, although split adjusted, is below its pre-COVID highs from February 2020. So this stock is basically flat over the past four years. Oil is taking a hit as recession concerns grow. Crude is now heading for its first down month since November. WTI around 107 today, down two and a half percent. And RH is in the spotlight as the retailer sinks after cutting its outlook. This one down 10 and a half percent today. They cited a weaker than expected economic environment and a slowdown in luxury home sales. This stock is now down 60 percent this year. JetBlue also in the red today with Spirit announcing it'll delay the shareholder vote on its proposed merger with Frontier. Uh, JetBlue taking that as a negative for its potential deal down 6%. So what's moving higher? Enphase, SolarEdge, Chipotle, Pfizer, and Intel. A real grab bag here. Some of the clean energy stocks, bad performers in the first half. A counter trend rally today with about 5 to 6% gains. And got to show what's happening in bond yields. This is kind of the key to everything. The 10-year back below 3%. 298 as yields drop globally. Remember, we were around three and a half percent a couple weeks ago before that Fed meeting. Weaker than expected economic data, Tabor inflation ratings, of course, moving the market this way. Now, even though it's likely to be the S&P's worst start to the year in half a century, it is helpful to get some context on this six-month drop. Bob Bassani is down at the New York Stock Exchange. Robert, what can you tell us? Well, Kelly, the headlines are really bad. They sound awful. This is the worst start to the year since 1970. We're going back to Nixon. Now, that's 52 years. It looks pretty bad. But is it really that bad? I want to try to offer a little perspective on this. We're obsessed with this calendar from January to the end of June. But really, there's been a lot of periods where six months, the market's been down more than 20 percent. Many years. I went back to 1957. That was, the, by the way, the start of the modern S&P when they actually started that. And there were 13 periods in that, that time when the S&P 500 has fallen 20 percent or more over six months. Do the math here. That's about once every five years. OK, that's, you know, not uncommon. It's not that common, but, you know, it's not once every 52 years. And there's a lot of periods where it was much, much worse than 20 percent. Just look at some of the worst ones here. And if you look carefully, you'll notice that most of the worst periods were concentrated around the great financial crisis in 2007, 2008, and 2009. Look, February 28, that period, night 2009 for the six months, down 42 percent. November 30, 2008, the six-month period, down 36 2009 down 34.8. I mean, look at these numbers. You've got to go back to 74 to get a pretty bad one as well. My point here is that 
the clustered around the great financial crisis, uh, and seven of the eight worst ones have occurred in the last 20 years. They've been fairly recently. And yet you look back over the last 20 years uh, at the S&P 500, the S&P is up 270% since 2002. With all of those big 20% drops that we've seen, the point here is, yes, it hasn't been a great start to the year, but we've had many periods where it's been down like this, and we've recovered. By the way, people ask me about COVID. Oh, we were down more than 20%. No. On a six-month basis during COVID, Kelly, there was no six-month period where we were down more. The worst was the period ended in March 2020. The six months before that, it was only down about 13 or 14 percent. So you, people get this idea in their head that there's some horrible thing that's happening that's never happened before, and it's not really true. Long term, the market tends to go up, Kelly. Thank All you. right. All right. It's like you never want to hear it after a period like this, but it's true. Bob, thank you very much. Uh, we okay. appreciate it. Our Bob Bassani. My next guest agrees that the pendulum may have swung too far into the fear camp, and those with a three to five time year horizon should put money to work. Joining us with his picks is Sandy Villery, co-portfolio manager of the Villery Balanced Fund. And Sandy, I think this is important to check in with everybody on first half performance. What about for you guys, down about 20 percent? And what would you say about the landscape that we're facing into the back half? Yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd be more excited about uh, putting money to work in high quality names. Um, if you look at, you know, the, the Vanguard value index, you know, down about 10 percent year to date, yet Vanguard growth is down about 30 percent. I'm more inclined to buy something down 30 percent um, that offers a lot more value, uh, growth at a reasonable price than, than what you'd find where a very crowded trade has occurred in, in value names, the, the Staples, healthcare, utility, telecom stocks. I want to really avoid those and, and start playing some offense here. What about the argument that some of the growth names are permanently broken? You know, the business models just don't work. Some are. I mean, let's be honest. Some some of these names that came out of SPACs, et cetera, some that don't make money, uh, I would probably avoid some of those uh, some of those names that are not as uh, on solid footing as uh, some of the, you know, high quality, uh, high quality stocks you can buy that have great cash flow characteristics, uh, you know, moats dug around the businesses and, and things that are probably going to perform you know, quite well. And, and what a great opportunity to be able to buy these things, some off 35, 40 percent um, that you can put away and, and make some good money looking out three to five years. So Bob was just talking about, you know, kind of the history here, and it's not that unusual to have a, a period like we've just been through. But what do you think the, the fundamental case is for a sort of better environment in the back half? And um, what do you make of rates today as well? Yeah. So, you know, we look at, are, are we going into recession? That's what, that's what we're all talking about. And does this happen at the end of this year? Does it happen next year? And the reality is, um, you know, we probably do have some sort of shallow uh, re recession and I would argue it would probably be next year, but you know, you were showing some of those uh, stats from 2008, 2009, that feels like yesterday. And uh, that was a scary time. I mean, we lost 11 million jobs at that time today. Basically anybody that wants a job can have one Sure, It's going to get a little bit tougher before we, you know, before the fed is finished. Uh, you know, raising rates, which we should see here in uh, in July, another 75 basis points or something like that. But, you know, this is all self-inflicted when when the Fed can finally cool this economy. And we saw consumer spending, you know, slow down a little bit, four tenths of one percent uh, this morning. Then I think uh, we can we can get back to, to to some normalcy here. So I think that happens probably uh, sooner than later. And uh, and I, I wasn't uh, that disappointed to see a little bit of a slowdown in consumer spending. That's actually you know going to help the Fed. Uh, slow down their, their rapid uh, rate hikes here to battle the, the red hot economy. 
One of the stocks, there's a couple you like on semi, you like Palomar. You also like Pool Corp, which is one of those names that was a big pandemic winner. And now, of course, there's like the reopening hangover. Um, why? What, what is the case for owning this name over the next couple of years? Yeah, so we've been involved with pools since 1996. We wow. truly hold stocks for, you know, decades. Um, so we, we were actually involved in the initial public offering, you know, way back when. But, you know, pools getting kind of a tough rap because they believe it's tied into housing, which it is. It's got 20 percent of its sales and in, in, in sort of new new pool builds. But 80 percent of their revenue is really just boring maintenance and repair your swimming pool. So, you know, these guys are as big as their top 50 competitors combined. And unless you think people are going to let their pool turn green or black and not not buy chemicals or, or salt tabs for it, um, then this should be a good a good place to hide. And, and by the way, it's down, you know, almost 40 percent, you know, from where it was. So, you know, I think this is indicative of what's going on. You're probably going to see them, you know, report and, in, in, uh, you know, they're going to report for their second quarter and probably uh, whatever, three weeks or so. And I think when they do, they're probably going to say, um, you know, the, the quarter was great. But maybe we're going to we're seeing a little bit of a slowdown. I think those are opportunities to be able to, to buy and that those could set the bottoms for not only pool, but for many stocks. And I think once they reset the expectations and I don't mean meaningfully, but just sort of, uh, you know, guide to where we are today. I think you could buy these stocks and, and that could set sort of bottoms in the market, you know, looking forward. Very interesting. And you mentioned, you know, obviously you've been in the, the market a couple of decades Broadly speaking, as I said, you know, if you have a first half where the fund's down 21 percent, but you're probably accustomed to that kind of turbulence, what do you tell clients and what have you personally experienced in terms of hanging on to some of these names that you're confident are going to work in the long run, but people are demanding a better explanation for why they're not working right now? Yeah, and it's frustrating because uh, the more you could do as much investment research as you want on a particular name and things just tend to go down. And so what we're telling our customers is, look, this is tough. You know, we're, we're, we're in it. We own the same stocks that you do. But sometimes the best action is no action at all. Don't don't sell while things are, you know, at a 25 or, or even 30 percent discount. Um, but it's actually a good opportunity to maybe even uh, maybe take some of the maybe, you know, some some money out of some of the, um, you know, more stable companies that are be more, more stable oriented and put them into more of these growth names. I mean, this is where you have an opportunity to really make some money if you have that three to five year horizon. Um, somewhere in here is not, never going to call the bottom, but somewhere in here we're we're getting closer to it. Um, certainly a big discount, and and those those that are putting money into four hundred one ks every month, what a great opportunity to be able to buy things at a nice discount to where they had been trading. So um, we're, we're uh, you know just basically telling our clients just don't do anything rash, don't don't feel like you need to sell down here, but just just hold on. And and that advice worked out well. Uh, you know, back in 0809, it worked out well uh, during the pandemic. And I think we'll get through this as well. Um, it's just a good opportunity to upgrade the portfolio and buy some very high quality stocks. All right. Well, we appreciate the long term. Um, you know, it's not it, it, re reassuring, I guess, is the word I'd use take in, in what's been a very, very difficult market. Sandy, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Kelly. Sandy Villery with the Villery Balanced Fund. Meantime, in a major blow to federal government agency power, the Supreme Court ruling today that the EPA does not have the authority to set standards on greenhouse gas emissions for power plants. Brian Sullivan is on the news line with more, including, Brian, the fallout for some energy stocks. Yeah, really, Kelly, it is a blow not only to the EPA, but potentially other federal agencies. It is a six to three decision from the Supreme Court. And it overturns a lower court ruling, effectively stripping the Environmental Protection Agency of its authority to make sweeping rules related to emissions. The initial challenge came after the EPA in 2015 made an order requiring coal plants to cut production or 
help subsidize other forms of energy. This was fought by a few states, attorneys general led by West Virginia. Lower courts upheld the EPA power but lost it here. Striking down the lower court ruling, Chief Justice John Roberts writes, quote, this court doubts that Congress intended to delegate decisions of such economic and political significance, i.e. how much coal-based generation there should be over the coming decades to any administrative agency, end quote. Chief Justice Roberts continues that this view of the EPA's authority was not only unprecedented, but that it also affected a fundamental revision of the statute, the law, changing it from one sort of scheme of regulation into an entirely different kind. In other words, the Chief Justice deciding the original purpose of the law was morphed by the EPA into something, Kelly, that it was never intended to be. Now, President Biden reacting to the decision swiftly, saying, quote, this is another devastating decision for the court that aims to take our country backwards. While the court's decision risks damaging our ability to keep our air clean and combat climate change, President Biden will not relent using the authorities that he has under power and public law to protect health and tackle the climate change crisis, end quote. This decision is certainly a victory for certain parts of the fossil fuel and power generation industries, because the court, Kelly, is expressly stating that it is the power of Congress, not the EPA or federal agencies, to enact and enforce its sweeping regulations over an industry. This case largely came about a fight over rules around coal, but coal stocks, Kelly, are not reacting positively today on this, probably because the market already anticipated it. And, by the way, the three big coal companies' stocks are already up about 140 to 150 percent in the past year as coal use booms around the world. Yeah, perhaps maybe we could say that world events um, and everything going on have done more uh, to make the case for high fossil fuel usage than, than this decision alone could. Brian, for now, we'll leave it there. We'll have more next hour. We appreciate it very much, our Brian Sullivan. Coming up, Bitcoin is down 40% this month, back below 19,000 earlier today. How long could this crypto winter last? We'll explore the latest. Plus, more than 90% of the names in the Renaissance IPO ETF are down at least 25% from their highs. But our trader has three names from the group he's scooping up and one he wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. It's ahead on three buys and a bail. And as we go to break, let's get a quick check on markets, which are trying to make a run earlier into positive territory. But now the Nasdaq back down 1%, the Dow down nearly that much as the 10-year yield sits below 3%. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Bitcoin falling below 20,000 and briefly below 19,000 again today. Remember, its all-time high occurred eight months ago, just a hair under 70,000 on November 10th. Bitcoin then started cratering all the way down to 40,000 in late January. It was pretty range-bound for the beginning of this year, even perked up a bit when the Fed began hiking rates in March. But in May, it all fell apart. Terra collapsed at the beginning of the month. Celsius suspended withdrawals. 3AC collapsed shortly thereafter. And Voyager Digital and BlockFi had to be saved by FTX when they faced insolvency. Where does it leave us? Bitcoin down 70% in just eight months, with far fewer companies in the crypto landscape and a lot less confidence in the short term. On that cheery note, let's bring in Emily Parker. She's Coindesk's executive director. (laughs) 
Emily, uh, I mean, there are some interesting positives to point out here. Number one, not sure there are any taxpayer bailouts, at least yet, uh, taking place here, nor do I really hear people asking for it. Number two, doesn't really seem to be bleeding over into broader uh, systemic risk and into the financial system. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the, the silver linings, I guess I'd mention. Yeah, I mean, you just named a list of some very problematic things. So basically, there are two things affecting the crypto market. One is not specific to crypto and one is specific to crypto. The one that is not specific to crypto is that the crypto market has become more tied into equities markets. And so some of these larger concerns that are affecting equities markets are affecting crypto as well you know, concerns over interest rate hikes or just general concerns about an economic recession. So that's kind of one thing. The other thing are, as you mentioned, there are some things that are very specific to the crypto industry, namely some some projects in the crypto industry that have just had a lot of drama recently. So there was the Terra Luna debacle, which was basically the implosion of an algorithmic stablecoin project. And more recently, crypto lender Celsius, which has frozen user withdrawal, frozen user withdrawals for weeks now. So, you know, there's sort of two camps here. One is non-crypto and one is crypto. Yeah. So what do you think is most important to follow from here? I mean, we haven't seen you know, we've seen smaller players, for instance, gating withdrawals. We haven't really seen like a Coinbase doing that to a, a great extent. I mean, that could really change the confidence level. Um, we spoke with a guest yesterday who said the Goldman's, you know, digital currency or whatever they call it conference in New York last week was still a standing room only crowd. So I, I can't tell if if the bulls should want sentiment to be even worse than it is right now or, or what what direction we go from here in terms of where there might be real long term opportunities. Well, some of it will be depend on how we actually get out of this mess, right? So, you know, I think right now all eyes are on Celsius, this crypto lender that has been frozen user withdrawals. The problem is, is that when it comes to decentralized finance or DeFi, so many of these projects are intertangled. They borrow, they lend from one another. So that's the problem. There's just a lot of entanglement. So I think people are still seeing the fallout. You know, you have one project go down and then there can be kind of a domino effect. Um, and then I think, you know, there are concerns over, for example, the major stablecoin Tether. You know, what happens if, if there's a problem with Tether? So, you know, there definitely are more things that could happen. So, but also, again, as we said, there's kind of these larger macro concerns, which don't have to do with crypto. And so even if crypto does get its house in order, it's still subject to some of these same problems that we're seeing affecting the equities market. Finally, it, more in the news today, but it looks like Grayscale is going to sue the SEC over not uh, being allowed to become a Bitcoin ETF. What do you make of that? So this is basically a big conflict just between a lot of crypto proponents and regulators in general. It sort of reflects a very different worldview. So on the one side, you have the SEC, at least part of the SEC, claiming that they are refusing this in an attempt to protect investors. And they are okay with, for example, a Bitcoin futures ETF because Bitcoin futures are regulated by the CFTC. So they feel that by, you know, Bitcoin, they, they cite market manipulation, you know, they they, they, they claim this is a kind of investor protection. Then you have proponents like Grayscale and other pro-spot ETF companies who are saying that actually it's the opposite. By bringing a Bitcoin spot ETF sort of under the SEC regulatory framework, you would actually protect investors more because people are going to buy Bitcoin anyway, right. and they would just buy Bitcoin in less regulated And maybe ways. that's the final question here is the regulatory footing we came into the crypto boom on should it look different on the way out? I mean, even as large as a question is combining the SEC and CFTC or, or I mean, this has revealed some significant gaps 
and coverage. And obviously they're going to be late and try to clean all this up after the fact. But how big should the reforms be, I wonder? They, they should and will be very big. The question is when. It's not going to be immediate. It's going to take a while for any regulation to go through. But the, the, the key issue here, which you know we've talked about a bunch of times, is regulatory clarity. There are so many gray areas in U.S. crypto regulation. And what happens is you end up having regulation by enforcement. You have these projects that sort of go off the rails, and then the SEC goes after them. But that's not the most effective way to regulate an industry. It would be much better to have proactive, clear regulatory frameworks so everybody knows what they should and should not be doing. Right, exactly. Or they'll just learn from the price action uh, the hard way, I guess. Emily, thank you so much. Uh, We appreciate it today. Emily Parker of Coindesk. In the last week, CNBC polled about 500 CIOs, strategists, and portfolio managers for where they stood on the markets for the rest of the year. And respondents, definitely bearish on crypto. More than half of them saying they think Bitcoin will end the year below 20,000. I guess that's sort of where we are right now. Anyway, for more, head to CNBC.com for the entire survey results. Also, Crypto Night in America returns tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern. We'll have the latest on Bitcoin's price action and the future of crypto companies facing these liquidity crises. You definitely don't want to miss it again, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Still ahead, the ProShares online retail ETF, now negative in June, which means it's on pace for its eighth straight month of losses. But Raymond James is bullish on the space, initiating seven e-commerce companies with a strong buyer outperform. The analyst himself calls the move bold. He joins us ahead. Plus, China is Apple's second largest market, but the company expected to take a multi-billion dollar hit to revenue from China this quarter. Is a rebound now underway? And what's it mean for Apple's product line? That's next. As we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with two out of three names in the red today. Walgreens, Salesforce, and JP Morgan are the worst performers, while Travelers, once again, best of the bunch. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to the exchange on the final trading day of the first half of the year. Dow was down almost 600 points earlier. We're currently down 162. Energy is the only sector higher this year. It's only up 30 percent, though. It was up 40 percent before this recent correction. Worst performers, consumer discretionary and communication services. Those are the two biggest laggards. Now, the top individual performers are also energy names. Exxon's up 40 percent since January, although it's now on pace to snap a six-month win streak. Exxon would actually be the best stock in the Dow this year had it not been replaced with Salesforce. Exxon shares have more than doubled since it was booted almost two years ago, while Salesforce since then is down almost 40 percent, and it's the second biggest drag on the Dow this year. Cruise Lines also among the worst performing names in 2022. They've lost around half their value during what should have been the summer of travel. Carnival is closing in on a new post-COVID low. Watch these numbers. $7.80 was its April 2020 bottom at the lows today. It was trading at $8.10 a share. Another milestone to watch, Pinterest on pace for its 12th straight month of losses, down nearly 80% in that time. It's up to the new CEO to turn things around, but it's down again almost 8% today. Now to Frank Holland for a CNBC News update. Frank? Hey there, Kelly. I am Frank Holland. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Ketanji Brown-Jackson was sworn in as the Supreme Court's 116th justice at a small ceremony earlier today. She becomes the first black woman to sit on the nation's highest court. Jackson replaces Stephen Breyer, who retired after the court announced its final set of rulings for the current term. It served for nearly 28 years. Police officers fatally shot an emergency room patient after he opened fire on them at a hospital outside of Dallas. Police were responding to a call after a nurse spotted that gun. 
patient fired his weapon when police confronted him. No other people were hurt, and the incident is still under investigation. Authorities, and they're still looking for a motive. And Patrick Leahy, the longest-serving member of the U.S. Senate and third in the presidential succession line, is undergoing surgery this morning for a broken hip. Doctors recommended the operation after the 82-year-old senator fell at his home last night. He will soon receive physical therapy treatments and is expected to make a full recovery. That's the very latest. Kelly, back over to you. Oh, we wish him well, Frank. Thank you. And we have some more breaking news out of the crypto world. Let's get out to Kate Rooney. What's happening, Kate? Hey, Kelly, that's right. FTX is closing in on a deal to buy crypto lender BlockFi. This is according to three sources familiar with that deal. The price tag, I'm told, 25 million with an M. That's a 99% drop compared to BlockFi's last private valuation of $4.8 billion. The term sheet is almost over the finish line, I'm told sources expect it to be signed. By tomorrow, that price tag could also shift between now and Friday, which also marks the end of the quarter. That may have been a catalyst here for getting a deal signed. I'm also told that multiple offers were on the table. The Journal first reported FTX was seeking an equity stake in the company, while The Block reported that an outright deal was in the works as well. No comment from FTX. BlockFi didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. But the fire sale, Kelly, comes a week after FTX gave a $250 million emergency loan to BlockFi. Billionaire CEO of FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, has really been seen as a lender of last resort in this space and looking to deal, do some M&A as well. In addition to BlockFi, Bankman-Fried's company Alameda Research provided a $500 million loan to Voyager, another crypto lender. It's the latest fallout amid this crash we've seen in crypto prices. We've seen lenders struggle with liquidity. BlockFi equity investors also pretty much getting wiped out here. They're writing off the value of these losses. BlockFi had raised almost a billion dollars in VC funding. Kelly, back to you. Kate, how deep are Sam Bankman-Fried or FTX's pockets, and why have they emerged as the one with all the dry powder here that can now potentially roll up, I don't know, half the industry? It's such an interesting question, Kelly. Because it's a private company, we don't have a lot of insight into how much cash is on at least the balance sheet for FTX. I'm told it's a pretty profitable company, but if you've got to look at Coinbase and companies like Robinhood, who have seen this massive slowdown in crypto trading, you'd think that would be a hit to FTX in terms of what they could afford. I'm also told by other sources that that might be a reason why they may not be able to afford a Robinhood deal. Separate topic, but they have been doing some M&A and shopping around here and likely taking advantage of the, the drop in valuations and sort of the opportunity here Sam Bankman-Fried has also been seen as a lifeline for a lot of crypto companies who don't have the Fed. They don't have any other lender of last resort. So he's been seen as propping up some of the companies. A failure of a big crypto company not seen as a great thing for the industry could really weigh on his business as well. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. So many echoes of history, whether it was the original J.P. Morgan or even the financial <laughs> crisis. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, very active uh, with the space under pressure. Kate, thank you very much. Our Kate Rooney reporting. Seal ahead, the Renaissance IPO ETF. Speaking of names like Robinhood, it's down nearly 50% so far this year. And for a lot of components, it's even worse. This name is down more than 70% year to date. So why does my next guest say it's a buy? We'll tell you in a special IPO edition of Three Buys and a Bail, straight ahead.
Welcome back. 2022 has not been kind to many corners of the market. It's been especially brutal for recent IPOs. The Renaissance IPO ETF down 48% this year. It's on pace for its worst quarter ever. And nearly 30 names on the list are down more than 50% year to date. So where are the opportunities? Joining me now is CNBC contributor Steve Grasso. He is CEO of Grasso Global. And he has three buys into bail for us today. So three names at least uh, you have found here, Steve. It's good to have you. Your first one is Rivian, the EV truck maker. Huge splash, $100 billion valuation at the debut last November. Down 74% this year with supply chain and inflationary problems. You say it's a buy. Why? Well, I still own it, <clears throat> so it'd be inconsistent if I if I didn't think it was a buy. And may, maybe it was. You have to realize, though, Kelly, that when it did come out IPO, we were in a completely different market environment. We we're in a growth phase. We were in buy any growth uh, that you can get your hands on. So was it mispriced? I don't know. Maybe it wasn't mispriced for the environment, but it was poor timing. So now, when you look at it, what's been the major headwinds for it? It's been production. So they have to figure out how to produce more vehicles. Seems obvious, but what most people are worried about with this one is cash. They have $17 billion in cash, Kelly. They have enough to last through their growth phase all the way to 2025. That, to me, should be more than enough time to get production in line, to get into a better growth environment. So I'm sticking with it. Plus, you have Amazon there as a... a, uh, you know, a little bit of a support right. for them as well, ordering their commercial vans. I, I think it's still a buy. And uh, of course, I think it's much bigger buy at these levels than it was uh, originally at the IPO. <laughs> All right, let's move on to your next buy. A little more esoteric. It's Coupang, the South Korean e-commerce giant. Why this one? Well, this, this, the, all, all these names on this list are going to suffer from the same thing. No one wanted to be involved with any growth name that was reliant on low rates, right? Because you're paying for that future growth. So we're not talking, even the Apples of the world and the Amazons of the world were hit when we switched from growth to value. Now, when we look at uh, a a possible possible recession looming, people don't want, investors don't want to purchase anything that's in the growth bucket or anything that's not in the proven growth bucket. But this one is the Amazon of South Korea. It's going to service Asia. It's going to service America. This one, Morgan Stanley called it a compelling value uh, in the last couple of days. This is one that's mistimed the market as well. So for you to pick up this one going into the next growth cycle, and there will be a next growth cycle, I I think this is a tremendous valuation for the name. All right, let's move on from Coupang to UiPath. That's your final buy. They're down 56% this year, very similar performance. They also just announced they're trimming 5% of the workforce. So I don't know if you take that as a kind of a helpful sign. Uh, Maybe if you think the stock is a buy, why does this one jump out to you? So this one was a restructuring element to it that made me feel as if this could be uh, constructive going forward. And by the way, all of these names on a technical basis seem to have bottomed out in the middle of May. So there's something else that you want. You don't want to look at names that have not been hit hard. Now, my caveat, Kelly, is if the market gets hit again, these are not going to be immune. Two-thirds of stocks trade with the overall market. I've said that for uh, over a decade while I've been on CNBC. So none of these names, none of these names are going to be immune regardless of what bucket they're in, growth or value. 
But this one is going to focus on automation. It's going to focus on AI. How are companies going to deal with a possible recession? They're going to lay off people and rely more on AI and automation. And this one should be in the sweet spot. So remember, they're laying off people because they were front-loaded for growth. Hmm. Environment changed, they changed. That's what smart companies do. So that's why I feel as if they're pivoting while others are standing still. That's why I think it's my third buy. All right, that wraps up the buys. Your bail surprises me. It's Palantir, you know, a company that has a long, you could say, proven track record. Granted, uh, the shares have also been down 50% this year. Why would you stay away here? So, so they have a similar, so I'm going to give the positive on my bail um, <laughs> as well. So they have a simil, similar chart to the rest of the other ones. They look like they've also bottomed in May. So I would not be leaning into this because any stock that's down this substantially is due for or ripe for a bounce. My problem with Palantir is that they're too reliant on government contracts. In, in, the, in the face of the, uh, of the world that we're dealing with right now with Russia, Ukraine, this is one that should have been tripping over itself and, and having buyers line up. We didn't see that. And I think the problem is they're too reliant on government contracts. And do you think the government is going to be spending more money going forward or less? I'll answer my own uh, qu uh, question. I think they're <laughs> going to be spending less money. So if you're more reliant on a customer... For the bulk of your revenue that's going to be shrinking, you have to bail on that stock. Once again, my caveat is this. The chart tells me that all of these stocks probably should rally if the market rallies. But I would think that Palantir is going to be dealing with major headwinds going forward for yeah. their business strategies. All right, Steve, you did it. Three buys and a bail from this IPO bunch. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's great to see you today. Thank you. Steve Grasso, Grasso Global. Still ahead, Apple is reportedly gearing up to launch as many as two dozen new products this fall, but the lockdowns in China could dictate when those items are actually in people's hands. All the ways China's zero COVID policy is impacting the tech giant next. And as we close out the second quarter, here's a check on the NASDAQ 100 laggards. Netflix is the worst performer, down 52%, followed by Airbnb, Illumina, DocuSign, and Mercado Libre. The exchange is back in a moment. Welcome back. The COVID-related shutdowns in China have hit Apple on everything from its supply chain to even the App Store. Steve Kovac is here to assess, assess she said, the damage, Steve. <laughs> yeah, this is what everyone's going to be watching. Uh, Apple uh, in April of this quarter said up to $8 billion hit due to, uh, to its sales due to these China lockdowns. So how bad was it? Well, we can kind of read the tea leaves and get some hints at how the quarter went for Apple. First, there's the iPhone ship times, which did not slip. You can literally just walk into an Apple store right now and pick up an iPhone 13. Uh, so that's a sign Apple prioritized that most profitable product and moved production around in other regions of China in order to get the iPhone out. Meanwhile, Morgan Stanley's Katie Hubert is saying in a note this quarter, knocking down those reports that the next iPhone, the iPhone 14, would be delayed. Also, UBS analysts saying iPhone sales were actually up 13% in China for the month of May as lockdowns loosened in the country. But it was a different story for the Macs. There are some signs uh, China shutdowns were affecting the newest MacBooks that were announced this month. 
First of all, Apple didn't give a specific launch date for those new MacBooks, and the MacBook Pro, which launched last week, had a slower hard drive than the previous version of the MacBook Pro. And services are a less positive thing going on in China for Apple. Analysts saying slowing growth in the China's App Store sales, similar to what we've seen throughout the pandemic with other digital services companies. BOVA analysts estimating just 3% App Store growth in China in May versus 11% a year ago. And we'll get the final results straight from Apple on July 28th, Kelly, when they report earnings. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a good reminder. So, so much hardware is is coming, I guess. I mean, and what am I seeing about how they're trying to add a button where you can pay for gas in your car with AirPlay in the fall or something? They seem yeah. to have a lot in the works here. Yeah, they do have a lot in the works. But what the, the good news is, for Apple at least, is they really have been able to shift and manage this pretty well. What, we're, what I'm dying to know and what investors are dying to know, how bad was that hit? Was it closer to that $4 billion or the $8 billion in that range they gave? That's a really broad range. And even then, they're still showing signs of growth, especially they've been able to protect the iPhone production pretty well this quarter. Is that because of India? It's not just because of India. They're also moving iPhone production to different regions in China. Uh, that Shanghai corridor is where a lot of production happens, but that's where a lot of the lockdowns were, too. So they kind of had to shift to other regions where the lockdowns weren't so bad. And that's why, again, you can go into an Apple store right now and buy an iPhone. Even shifting within China, as you pointed out a lot when we were back when we were talking about these shutdowns, we'll give them credit and we'll see what else they've got up their sleeve. Yes. Steve, thank you very Thanks, much. Kel. Steve Kovac. Up next, online retailers have had a rough time lately. One analyst says some names are coming back into fashion, and he calls this name down 67% this year a strong buy. We'll reveal it and what's got him so bullish next. Welcome back. It has been a rough year for a lot of discretionary names as shoppers grapple with rising inflation and a potential recession. We've been keeping an eye on companies in the online e-commerce space, especially the ones that have gone public recently, and they've had a particularly tough go of it. Like Figs, the medical scrubs maker, down 81% from its highs. The secondhand retailer, ThreadUp, down 91%. And the real real, the luxury reseller, also down about 87%. But my next guest says these names could be coming back in fashion. He says Figs is a strong buy and is bullish on the others. Let's bring in Raymond James analyst Rick Patel. Rick, it's great to see you. And all right, lay it all out for us. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, I think the, the key here is really starting with the health of the consumer. So when we think about the consumer, uh, we do believe that she remains pretty strong right now. So coming out of COVID, uh, you know, there was about 2.1 trillion of excess savings that was accumulated during the pandemic. It's about 17,000 per household. Uh, and our strategy team at Raymond James estimates that only about 10% of this has been spent. So I think there's a lot of purchasing power uh, in terms of dollars that can be deployed towards the discretionary products. Uh, one of the questions that we get is where that spend is going, whether it's going towards services, things like travel and eating out, uh, as opposed to buying goods. Uh, we ran a survey recently, uh, and about 75% of the people that we surveyed uh, plan to spend the same, if not more, on things to wear in the next six months uh, versus year to date. So sure. I think the purchase intent remains pretty strong here. That said, JP Morgan just has some new data showing a 10% increase, 10 point increase in consumers paying bills. It's up to 35%, which is the highest since the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, look, inflation is going to be uh, a macro overhang, right? That's not a new data point and, uh, in terms of that being a friction point, but we're focusing much more on the spending power 
And I do believe that that remains quite strong. And our survey work does support the notion that there's going to be uh, there's an intent to spend more in the back half of the year. For companies like Figs, um, we mentioned ThreadUp, the real real. Are they profitable? So, uh, Figs is very much profitable. So they, they we estimate that operating margins this year are going to be in the ballpark of 17 and a half percent. Wow. And that's taking into account. Uh, a lot of pressure that they have from air freight uh, related to supply chain issues. And we have them going to about 20% next year. Uh, threat up is not profitable. Uh, we don't have them reaching profitability for another few years. So if I was looking through these names, I mean, 80 to 90% declines are extraordinary. What do you think figs should be worth versus where it's trading today? Yeah, I mean, this is a company where we have a price target, uh, you know, that implies uh, about 25% upside from where it is right now. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I, I think it boils down to execution and having a very strong rate of revenue growth. And this, and we estimate the revenues are going to be growing at about a 25% kegger uh, over the next few years, uh, at least. Okay. And Figs is trading at under $10 a share right now. It IPO'd around 20. So you have, that's your strong buy. You have six outperforms, including Etsy, ThreadUp, Rent the Runway, Market Performs, Overstock, and Poshmark. How many of these companies do you think survive as uh, solo entities? And is there any possibility, we were speaking with Jan Niffen about this yesterday, could they end up being taken out by a Walmart, by an Amazon, you know, by a Macy's, for instance, by each other? Yeah, I mean, never say never when it comes to acquisitions, uh, you know, in this space. Um, I, I think for a lot of these companies, their underlying fundamentals remain strong despite what valuations uh, might be doing uh, at this moment. Um, you know, when I think about a company like like Figs, our, our price target is, is fifteen dollars, uh, and it's a very strong business. I think the bigger question is whether these companies want to be taken out at these depressed levels. So when you think about where valuations have come down, it, it's down about fifty five percent. Uh, at these levels right now, close to trough versus where the average is. Uh, and so the, the question begs, you know, do the founders want to sell at these levels or would they rather wait uh, for an organic improvement in the business if they really are confident about the long-term trajectory of their business? Do they maintain control? I mean, is it going to be up to them? Well, I think for it depends on the company, but uh, for the most part, uh, the some of the recent IPOs that have super voting rights in terms of where the founders uh, control is. So uh, I think it's uh, it's really under the, uh, the founders uh, control whether they decide to sell or, or they want to wait it out. Well, and that could make it harder for those who are hoping that cons consolidation would be a, a, a factor in the bull case. Nevertheless, Rick, thanks for coming on and digging into it a little bit for us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Rick Patel today. Up next, one area of housing improved this month, while another sharply dropped to its worst since 2007. We'll discuss after this quick break. Welcome back, everybody. Housing supply is building, which sounds great, right? But unfortunately, prices are still at record highs. Diana Olick is here with the latest data and what it'll take, Diana, to bring affordability back to the market. Well, that's right, Kelly. That's the biggest question. Look, the number of active home listings jumped at the fastest annual pace on record in June, or at least since Realtor.com began tracking this five years ago up close to 19%, and new listings finally surpassed typical pre-COVID levels. Markets seeing the biggest gain in supply are some of the once hottest pandemic plays. Austin inventory up close to 145% year over year. Phoenix up 113% and Raleigh up close to 112. 
Market's still seeing a drop, though, in supply. Miami down 16 percent, Chicago down 13 and Virginia Beach down 14 percent. Now, don't get too excited that all this new supply is helping with prices. The median listing price hit another record high in June of $450,000. The annual gains are moderating slightly, but they're still up almost 17 percent. Part of that is because the share of larger, more expensive homes is rising, and that skews the numbers slightly higher. As a result, of course, affordability in the second quarter of this year dropped in the vast majority of the nation. With higher prices and now much higher mortgage rates, the costs of owning the median-priced home in Q2 required 31.5% of the average U.S. wage. That's the highest since 2007 and up from just 24% the year before. That's also the biggest jump in more than two decades. Lenders generally see 28% as the ceiling for lending, and that's why some potential home buyers today are no longer qualifying for a mortgage, Kelly. And I keep hearing horror stories about soaring rents. Yeah, absolutely. We are seeing some of those gains moderate a little bit, though. You're seeing that in apartments, but the single family rents are still extremely high. And that's only going to get worse as more people are unable to afford to buy a home. What are they going to do? They have to rent. And that pushes demand higher. Exactly. Diana, for now, thank you very much. Diana Olick with the latest on housing. Another industry going through some pain right now, the airlines. We've got the latest cancellation numbers. They're pre-canceling. They're apologizing already for July 4th. What will it take to get carriers back on course. That's ahead in Power Lunch, which starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.